Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Welcome to Vertical Life Church. For those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey, and I just want to say welcome. We're so excited you spent some time with us this morning, and like those that are also semi-new and have come back, we hope you too will come back and uh, find a spiritual home here at Vertical Life Church. We uh, are just uh, people who love the God, who believe the Word, and know that God is faithful to His promises. The Lord is faithful. You can trust everything that He says. And uh, we are going through the scriptures, beginning with the book of Genesis through the Bible, to kind of rediscover who this God of ours is, who Jesus is. And we're calling this series The Great Romance, because if you open your heart to the story that the Bible tells, it's going to overwhelmingly compel you to lean in and give you that desire to give your heart to the Lord. When you recognize how much Jesus loves you, how much God loves you, has in store for you. It, it is what many scholars call unrejectable um, grace. It is this, uh, just this sense, this feeling that, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. How could I turn this down? And, um, and I believe that as we look in the scriptures, we're going to see this on display. And uh, as we're in this story, last week we talked about the holiest name given to Israel, the name Yahweh, and how Jesus is revealed even in that name as the Savior who is to come, that he was the one in the burning bush with Moses, and that one day he would come secure our redemption forever, and that we can trust him because as the I am, he is everything we need. Amen? Do you believe that? Amen. It's so true, so good. Today we're going to see that our God is God alone, and he is above all gods. There are many gods in this world. There are many things that try to take the place of God, but there is only one. Now, what's a beautiful thing in the New Testament is Jesus, again, with every revelation of God, often comes a new name. And when Jesus reveals God to us in the New Testament, he refers to God as the Father, which is a beautiful, beautiful illustration of who the Father is, who God really is to us. Because it relates to us. It, it re- reveals that there's relationship there. There's intimacy there. I get kind of a, a tickle out of this sometimes listening to people pray. Because sometimes, especially if you grew up in a church where I grew up, where you had to switch to King James English in order to pray out loud publicly. You know, people start dropping these and thous and stuff. They don't ever use any other time other than when they gather for church. Oh, how dear Father, thou Lord, you know, and, and their prayer lasts for like 15 minutes and everyone falls asleep by the end of it, you know. But uh, when people pray, it often reveals something that they believe or a sense of things going on inside of them. Jesus said, out of the flow of the heart does the mouth speak. And when you refer to the Lord, when you pray to God, Jesus says, when you pray, you should say, our Father who art in heaven. There's a purpose for that. Because you wouldn't walk up to your, your, your mom or your dad and say, hey, parent, I need such and such. Are they your parent? Yes. But you don't refer to them as their title or their status in your home. You call them mommy. You call them daddy. 
because it's an intimacy. It's a, it's a relationship. There's a bond there. And the scripture tells us that, that not only is God our Father, but the Holy Spirit has been sent to fill our hearts with the love of God so that even our spirit cries out, Abba, Father, which is an intimate name. It, that, that's calling God Daddy, literally Daddy. And some of us might, might wrestle with that. Man, it sounds weird to call God Daddy, but that's who He is. He is your heavenly Daddy. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's the father to the fatherless. He's the husband to the widow. He is in the innermost difficult situations of your life as your daddy. He carries you when you struggle. Now, I've been kind of laughing with my wife this week because um, as, as being the dad in, in the home that I dwell in, some uh, kind of funny things have been transpiring as of late. I, I remember thinking when I was young of my father, I used to think that my dad was invincible. You know, that your dad's the tough one, the strong one, that he's invincible. And my, uh, my kids sometimes will, these hypothetical situations revolving toughness come up in our home. And so there's this kid that's like 13, 14 years old and supposedly is a really good arm wrestler and has even beaten some adults. And so my kids will come up to me and say, hey, dad, you know, do you think you could beat him? I'm like, if I can't beat a 14-year-old in an arm wrestling competition, there's something wrong. You're right. So, so I'm like, no, I'm tough. I, I can do this. But then they start watching Animal Fight Night, and my youngest son, Asher, asked my mom, do you think Dad could beat the tiger? And I, and, and, you know, because even though you know it's it probably impossible, there's something deep down that thinks, you know what, Dad could probably do it. Dad could probably, you know, beat the tiger. And, and uh, it's just kind of funny. And, and you know, my, uh, my father-in-law has kind of given me some big shoes to fill. Greg is one of the toughest men I know. He could dig a hole faster than any trencher any man could create. He's a tough guy. So not only do I have big shoes to fill, but I have big arms to fill too. And I'm working on it, Greg. I'm working on it. But, but you know, there's just this, this thing that they, they will come up and they'll be like, do you think you could beat Papa in an arm wrestling competition? Or if you and Papa got in a fight, who would win? And I humbly admit the truth, Papa, always Papa. You know, and um, if you played football with him, you'd recognize it's Papa. You know, he wins. But um, it's just kind of something that goes on in our, in our family. And when I was a kid, I remember arguing with my friends about whose dad could beat up who. And, and even if you knew it probably wouldn't happen, you wouldn't ever admit it because you just got to believe that your dad can do everything. One thing our Father in Heaven has definitely proven time and time again is that he is God and he is God alone. King of kings, Lord of lords. This God of ours, he is king of the mountain. How do we know? Because he even named it. It is Mount Zion. He is king of the mountain. And there is not a nation in history, not a story in history like the book of Exodus where a nation has come out of another nation that was once slaves in, in a nation that came out of another nation and never had to fire a shot. Th think about it. We fought a bloody civil war in this nation over slavery. A bloody civil war. And the slaves finally were freed. And they didn't go off and start their own nation. They just became part of this one. In the story of Exodus... Probably a million to two million Jews in slavery in Egypt left without having to fire a shot because of an act of God that is unheard of in all of history. And there's a reason why 
God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Why this story is so integral to our faith. How the nation of Israel begins to unfold. How Yahweh has confirmed through this story that he is the God above all gods throughout the world. Now the story of Exodus is a one that has been highly contested. Many skeptics denounce its validity at all. They've argued that there's a lack of evidence in archaeology to support the account, to give it any credibility, uh, even to the fact that they don't believe Moses could have been intelligent enough to even write the books of Moses to relate the story, um, which is why if you watch any television stories like from the History Channel or anything about the, the story of Exodus, they will largely dismiss it being valid at all, and they'll relegate all of the supernatural events to some unknown phenomena having to do with global warming or climate change. There, there is this, this need in the world to dismiss or discount this story. There's an awesome series out right now. It's a documentary series called Patterns of Evidence where uh, a man who was kind of on the fence of his faith did an investigative journey and now through archaeology has discovered that if you just shift the original dates that skeptics have listed for the Exodus, you shift it back just a few years, you have a perfect chronology matching up with the archaeology. It's fascinating. Even to find out that the Hebrew language was found in ancient Egypt before the Phoenicians ever discovered the alphabet, which is changing how we're even seeing how language developed in the modern day. It's totally fascinating. If you've not seen it and you are a nerd like me, I'd encourage you to watch this series. But in this story, just like Pharaoh, we're going to see when your heart is already hard, <clears throat> no matter how much evidence you're presented, no matter how compelling it is, it won't be enough to convince you. Faith is a choice. And God is not afraid of evidence. God is not afraid of evidence. Matter of fact, he gives Moses this anointing to do miracles so that he can prove through evidence that God had sent him to the Hebrews. He said, do these miracles for the Hebrews so they know I sent you. And then he sends him to Pharaoh to do the same thing, to prove through evidence that God not only existed, but that he was sending Moses on a mission. But only Pharaoh doesn't believe the evidence Moses provides. I believe that God takes Israel out of Egypt, tells Pharaoh to let his people go, to stand as a testimony, as evidence for all time that there is only one God and Yahweh is his name. But as always, evidence is up for interpretation. But God tells Moses, even though you do these miracles to Pharaoh, He's going to harden his heart. He's not going to let the people go. God already knows this in advance, but he sends Pharaoh anyway. And says, so he says, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate my glory in Egypt. I'm going to show the world, the most powerful nation in all the world at the time, the mightiest military, the greatest economy. I'm going to show the whole world in Egypt that I alone am God. And I'm going to do it by sending some plagues. Finally, Moses is sent, and he has his moment before Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 10 through 13, it says, Moses and Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother, went to Pharaoh and did what the Lord had commanded them. Aaron threw down a staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh called in his own wise men and sorcerers, these Egyptian magicians, to do the same thing with their magic. They threw down their staves, which also became serpents. But then the Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves, and Pharaoh's heart, however, remained hard. He still refused to listen, just as the Lord 
predicted. So we have this showdown between Moses and Aaron and the magicians of Egypt. And it's just a freaky thing to think about. You throw down a stick and it becomes this serpent, right? I'd be out of there in two seconds screaming like a little girl. I'd be like, nope, see ya, I'm out, you know, just, uh, just out of there. But the magicians, they don't panic. They throw their stabs down and they become serpents too. And, and as crazy as this is beforehand, and then Aaron's serpent eats the other snakes. Just a crazy, crazy thing. But we have this showdown. And the showdown between the magicians of Egypt and Moses. And this isn't the first time that this happened, or the only time this happens. During the first three plagues, a similar circumstance takes place. Through the staffs to serpents, water into blood, and frogs from the river. They're all replicated by Pharaoh's magicians and stand as an act of evidence to Pharaoh not to believe what Moses was telling him. And this is an important thing for us to wrestle with with our faith, especially in our modern day, in the day of science as we decide what we are going to believe. Because we, too, have an enemy, a powerful enemy, who does counterfeit signs and wonders and miracles. He does many things that are meant to deceive and invalidate the truth and power of God, to lead our hearts away from trusting in the one true God and living for the one true God, but trusting in other gods, other ways. There are many different spiritual practices today that are even creeping in into the body of Christ. There's a spiritual practice called Reiki or Reiki. It's a process of obtaining spiritual power for physical healing. It's demonic. There are psychics. We know this, the psychic hotline and all the different tarot card reading and palm reading uh, stands that are around. This is seeking spiritual power for prophetic revelation, for spiritual guidance. You have the New Age that provides spiritual power for connectivity to the supernatural deities and to create a supernatural community apart from God. You have the occult and witchcraft, spiritual power to undo biblical morality and subjection to the will of God. It's an antichrist belief system. And then number five, you have secular humanism and naturalism that believes that human beings are themselves gods that can define their own meaning, that meaning is found within and that everything can be explained through science and in the natural world. And what the theory of evolution, it, it's done, it, it's much of a fantasy and belief as it is any other religion. You can't use actual science to prove the theory of evolution uh, because no one has lived in the time where these things happened. You cannot observe it. The scientific method, you have to be able to observe and repeat what was going on. So you can't use actual science to prove our origins. The only thing you can do is observe the world today and assume that everything has remained the same and then use current testing to find an outcome and then use that and put that theory, that hypothesis upon the past. It's called induction, to posit theories to explain the past. And many people will choose to believe those theories as truth and use that for their belief system. And many with this worldview will claim that what the ancient people called magic, we now call science, and miracles are simply science we don't understand yet. It's a common accusation that invalidates the supernatural altogether. There's so many philosophies and beliefs that create counterfeit truths and even conjure counterfeit power. And many believers have so feared the counterfeit that we've run from the supernatural altogether and have so feared the true counterfeit truths and counterfeit miracles that we've rejected true miracles and the true power of God, like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
Like Pharaoh, a lot of believers today can't tell the difference between when God moves and when the enemy moves. So like Pharaoh, they harden their heart. But just because there's an existence of a counterfeit, it doesn't invalidate the real. It actually proves that there is a real. If the enemy is counterfeiting something, then something real actually exists. So rather than discerning what God is doing and what God is pursuing, walking in the power of God through the Holy Spirit, many just reject the idea of the power of God being able to manifest in a person's life today completely. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2 or chapter 3, he says these people are religious, but they deny the power that can make them godly. There's a power of God available to all who believe, a true power that breathes life and holiness and righteousness and brings good into the world, reveals his glory, and it's available to every believer. So the existence of a counterfeit doesn't invalidate the real. And what is seen from this very first encounter with the magicians and Moses is that though the enemy can produce a counterfeit, though the enemy can produce false signs and wonders, God always triumphs over evil. Moses' snake devoured the snakes of the enemy. And this is a prophetic declaration to Pharaoh that says, you are powerful, but my God is more powerful. And I am about to unravel everything you've thought and believed. I'm about to overturn this kingdom that you've built and these false beliefs that you have, that Yahweh rules supreme. And he's about to overcome every false argument and every stronghold that has held not only the nation of Israel captive, but the whole world through this moment. And what he does is he unleashes ten plagues into the nation of Israel to not only bring judgment into the, the nation of Egypt, but also a direct attack against the gods that they worship. It's a showdown that culminates in ten plagues. That number ten we saw a couple weeks ago was the, a number of divine um, completion or divine um, uh, number. It is a specified period that shows that God's doing a divine action. So there are ten plagues that show that after these ten plagues, these gods would be completely and divinely overtaken. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 18, the Pharaoh's magicians, um, again, trying to do the same things with their secret arts during this plague of gnats, they, they begin to try to do what they did before to invalidate God and Moses. But at the end of the day, you have to come to the realization that only God is God. And they came, and it says in verse 18, as they couldn't do the very thing that they were trying to replicate, verse 19, they admitted, this is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But again, Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord predicted. So here, they, they could do all these powerful things. They could even replicate some of the same miracles. But at the end of the day, they, they got to a point where they couldn't keep going. They couldn't replicate what God could do. And this is so telling in our day and age because scientists today are trying to do the very same things that God did. There is a, a two-mile circle under the ground in Switzerland, in CERN, Switzerland, called the Hadron Collider, where they are emitting photon and light rays at, a, at the speed of light colliding together to try to rip open small black holes to discover how life actually was created in the Big Bang. Well, we are trying to replicate the very acts of God. But even with all of our knowledge, all of our science, all these powerful things we can do, we still can't get past what was before nothing after the Big Bang. We get to the nothing part, but we can't discern what was before the nothing. 
Because zero plus zero is always zero. You, you can't get something out of zero. There's zero. That's the definition of nothing, the absence of everything. So once we get to nothing, we can't, we can't see it, but somehow out of nothing came something, and we can't figure it out. We can't recreate it. And so like these magicians, we look at it and say, this is the finger of God. But we have to decide what we're going to do with that. Harden our heart like Pharaoh or open our heart to the truth. No matter what type of science we discover or sorcery we implement, we'll never be able to accomplish an ex with an experiment what God did with a word. As a matter of fact, with the word, who is Christ the Lord. Just as science can't explain what was before the Big Bang, sooner or later we come to that same realization. Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart, which opens the door for God to rain down the ten plagues. Some people may think that God was being unfair to Egypt. Here this, it's really the Pharaoh's fault. If Pharaoh had just let the people go, then Egypt wouldn't have um, been under all these plagues. But you have to keep in mind that it wasn't just Pharaoh who was involved in this process. Egypt was enslaving Israel, much like America enslaved the African nations before the Civil War. It was terrifying. It was terrible. We would protest them like is being protested in our day today. So the, what was happening to Israel was not only unfair, it was inhumane. Number two, God gave Pharaoh multiple opportunity to let him go before the, the uh, plagues even came. He showed him grace. He said, I'm coming. I want my people to go. Let them go. And finally, the, th the third is even within the plagues, God was showing the Egyptians grace and mercy. In Exodus 9, 13 through 15, the Lord says to Moses, Get up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they can worship me. If you don't, I'll send more plagues on you and your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. But now I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with the plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. Here God is saying, you think this is bad. I could have annihilated you if I wanted to. Which means he didn't want to. He wasn't wanting to destroy the Egyptians. He was wanting to prove a point. Because of their wickedness and their refusal of Pharaoh to let his people go... God, in his grace and his mercy, but also his justice and his righteousness, is leveraging this moment to prove a point, not just to Egypt, but to all the world. To, remember, to remind the world that even though Egypt had a pantheon of gods that they deified and that they worshipped, that, that there was only one true God. One true God. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, says, on the night, this is the night of the last plague, God says, on the night I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt and I will execute, what's that say? Judgment against all the gods of Egypt. So not only was God bringing judgment on Egypt, he was coming against the demonic powers and rulers over the land to set up the standard that there is only one and I am he. So the judgment was not against the Egyptian people, really, it was against the demonic powers they worshipped. So I'm going to go through quickly what these gods are. There are ten plagues that are also associated with the ten gods to show you how with each judgment God reveals how he is the God above all gods. The first god of Egypt uh, that is conquered is the god Hapi or Happy. He's the Egyptian god of the Nile. 
he was the water bringer. Everything, all sorts of life from the Egyptians came from the Nile. Their fishing, their, their uh, ability to um, trade, everything came from the Nile. It was all the source of life. They believed every bit of life came from the Nile. So they worshipped and deified the Nile through this god, Hopi. But what did God do? He took the rod and he struck the Nile River and it became blood. And not just blood in the river, but blood in the entire land of Egypt so that they no longer had any fresh water to drink. All the fish died, completely destroyed. And what is God revealing to us? That a hoppy isn't the source of life, but he is the river of living water. John 4, 14, Jesus said, those who drink of the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. He is the river of living water. Number two is Heket. This is the Egyptian goddess of fertility, uh, also connected with new life and water and pictured with the head of a frog. The second uh, curse or plague on Egypt was the plague of frogs, where they were swarmed with frogs. And what this, uh, the magicians were able to reproduce this. But what God is revealing in this plague is that there is only one giver of life and only one who you should place your faith and trust in. It's not in Heket. John 3, 16 and 17 says, This is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have what? Eternal life. The giver of life is Christ the Lord. Why? He did not come into the world to judge it, but to save the world through him. Number three is the God Geb. He's the God of the earth, the dust of the ground. The third plague, God took the dust of the ground and turned it into lice, and lice covered all of the nation of Israel. And what God is revealing through this is that he is the creator of all things. He is the one that can take life and create life from the dust of the ground. In Genesis, we saw from the dust of the ground, he created man and breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Psalm 94, 9, it says, Is he deaf, the one who made your ears? Is he blind, the one who formed your eyes? Our God is creator God, Lord of heaven and earth. Number four is Kepri, the god of the rising or morning sun, who had the head of a fly or a scarab, and they represented a creation or symbolized rebirth. And what did God do? He sent a plague of flies. And in the original language, it was, it was all manner of flies. It wasn't just one type of fly. There were multiple types, beetles, uh, flies, scarabs, um, every kind of fly you can think of, all sorts of like gadflies, horseflies. And it said that the land was turned into chaos. It was fully corrupt when God sent this plague. And what's interesting is in the Egyptian legend, this god, uh, Kepri, overflew the god of chaos with the god of knowledge. So Kepri and knowledge came together to overthrow Apophis, which was the god of chaos. And what does God do in this plague? He sends the nation into chaos by declaring, no, chaos is not conquered by false gods. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. In John 14, 27, he says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give, so don't be afraid. Peace did not come through false gods. Peace comes through the one and only God. Isaiah 9, 6 says he keeps, he's the prince of peace. Number five is Hathor who's depicted by a cow. It's the goddess of love and protection. And what did God do? He sent a plague on all the cattle and livestock, annihilating the, the main food source in the nation of Egypt, the plague on the cattle and the livestock. 
what God was saying is that he, Jesus, is our protection and our provider. Psalm 46, 1 and 2 says, God is our refuge and our strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and mountains crumble into the sea. There's only one who is protector, and that is our God. Number six is Sekhmet, the goddess of war. She was associated with both disease and with healing and medicine. And worshipers of Sekhmet would often wear amulets or tokens around their body that would protect them from disease. That amulet allowed Sekhmet to control the disease in, in the, the land. And so what does God do? He sends a plague of boils and sores, and it says that not even the sorcerers of Egypt could stand against Moses and Aaron because of the sickness. That not even these protective devices, these amulets, could ward off this sickness. Why? Because Sekhmet has no power. God is God alone. You can't trust an article of clothing to protect you. You must trust the Lord of heaven and earth. And Isaiah 58.8 says, Then your salvation will come like the dawn, and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward, and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Number seven is the god Horus. He was the Egyptian god of vengeance or revenge. He was a sky god connected with war and light. And what did God do? He said, sent a plague of hail and lightning from the sky. And what is he saying? He says, he alone is our avenger. Romans 12, 19 says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Our God is our avenger. Number eight is Osiris, the Egyptian god of vegetation and judge and master of the underworld. And this is so key because God sends a plague of locusts that destroys all the vegetation in Egypt. And if you remember back in Genesis, the story of Joseph, the Pharaoh has a dream that troubles him. And the reason why Joseph became number two in the land is because Joseph was able to interpret the dream, which meant a terrible famine was coming. So seven years prior, all the abundance of the land of Israel, they stored away. And he used uh, just wisdom in order to save them through that famine. And not just uh, the nation of Israel, but all the surrounding territories as well came to Egypt for food and supplies during the famine. And it worked out that Egypt was able to grow in its territory, its power, and its affluence during that period of time because of the grain that was stored up during the famine. And here God sends locusts that destroy the grain. And what he's saying is, you didn't rise to power because of Osiris. You didn't become great uh, in the world because of these gods. You became great because I am God and I raised you up. I provided for you. And then not only that, but there is no other Lord than the Lord. There's no God of the underworld. I am Lord over both death and the grave. I give you life and I can also cause your death. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body. Where? In hell. There's only one Lord of the underworld, and that's God who is king over all things. Number nine, the god of gods in Egypt is Amun-Ra. He's their sun god, the creator and supreme over all things. And what does God do in plague number nine? He sends three days of darkness. And the scripture says it's darkness you can feel. It wasn't just a blackness where you couldn't see in front of your face. There was a darkness of spirit, a darkness that came over the nation. Yahweh, the true God, is God alone. 
Isaiah 45, 5 through 7, God says, I am the Lord, there is no other God, and I've equipped you for battle, so though, even though you don't know me, so all the world from east to west will know there is no other God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I create the light, and I make the darkness. I send good times and bad times. I'm the Lord who does these things. Osiris, or uh, Amun-Ra, was believed to uh, be like the phoenix, which was his why he's pictured like a bird, that in the morning he rises to new life, and at the end of the day he dies to be reborn the next day. And here God is saying, no, light and dark doesn't come from the gods. Light and dark comes from me. I set the sun in the, star, in the sky, and I control it. Everything's held together by my hand. And lastly, number 10, is the curse on Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh, in Egyptian culture, was considered to be the son of Amun-Ra, to be the representative of the gods to the, the Egyptian people. And the death of the firstborn was the death of the successor of Pharaoh, which meant his reign and legacy and Amun-Ra's reign and legacy had come to an end. There would be no repeating. They believed that when a Pharaoh is born, they were the born into the actual uh, recreation of the gods, and then when he dies, then the next one under takes his place. But because the oldest son died before the Pharaoh, that put an end to the cycle of the gods' birth and death. In Colossians 1.15, Scripture says that Jesus Christ it is a visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. There is only one Son of God, and that's Christ the Lord. So what does God do in this? It's a message declared once and for all that Yahweh, our God, is the Lord. There is no other. And when they crossed the Red Sea, if you think about the millions of Israelites that crossed the Red Sea, when they finally get through the land of Midian and into towards the uh, land of Canaan, news had already spread about what happened in Egypt, and they terrified the nations because of what God had done in Egypt. And out of all of the plagues, out of all the war against the gods, Israel had to do absolutely nothing for it to come to pass. They had to do absolutely nothing except on the day of the last plague, the night of the death of the firstborn, they had to go through what God called the Passover, where they would took a lamb, they had to specifically prepare it, they had to eat it in their home, and take the blood of the lamb and paint the blood on the doorposts and the, of the house so that when the angel of death passed through, it would skip over their home. They had to precisely prepare this lamb. They couldn't break its bones they had to eat it a certain way. They had to wear all their clothes so that they could leave quickly if they needed to. And as a part of the Passover festival, as you read later after they cross the Red Sea, God continues to instruct them that when they, they uh, observe this festival, that they're also to eat unleavened bread. That's bread without any yeast. They can't have any bread in their household. They had to have no yeast at all. And they had to also... Um, dedicate the firstborn of the livestock to the Lord. They had to sacrifice the firstborn of the livestock to represent the, the uh, lives of the Egyptians that were lost in that plague. They were even told to dedicate or sacrifice the firstborn sons that were born unto them. But God said, but do not kill them. What you are to do is you are to buy them back. You are to redeem those firstborn sons. You sacrifice the animals but you redeem the firstborn sons. 
Why? Because when a price is paid to redeem the sons, they're able to be set free. And this was to be a forever memorial, a history of what happened in the past, but also a prophetic declaration of what would happen in the future as the blood of the Lamb of God was poured out for us. When Jesus gave his life, he took our place, he paid the price for us, and as the blood of the Lamb was applied to the posts of our home, our hearts, we were purchased, we were set free through faith in his sacrifice. So the Lord told Moses, it's so key as we are looking at this story, the Lord told Moses there'd be a time when the children, the actual children in their nation would come and they would ask their parents, what does the Passover mean? What does all this mean? You know, when, it, when the events were not so fresh, when it became history in a history book or it became lost to future generations, they'll ask you, what does this mean? In Exodus 13, 14, here's what God tells them. It says, in the future, your children will ask you, what does all this mean? And then you are to tell them, with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. And you know what, beloved? Our children are going to ask us the same thing as we look at the bread and the wine. We look at the ceremonies we continue to celebrate. They're going to ask us, why do we do this? And we get to tell them the same thing. With a mighty hand, God delivered us from our slavery to sin and has purchased our freedom to give us life with his precious blood. Just as God commanded Israel not to break the bones of the Passover lamb, there's a prophetic connection to the Messiah. In Psalm 3420, the psalmist writes, For the Lord protects the bones of the righteous, not one of them is broken. And we know in the story of the crucifixion, before they're able to break the legs of Jesus to hasten his death because of the earthquake, uh, they notice he's already dead. And so they really, they just stab his side with a spear and out flows blood and water. And they confirmed that he was dead and they didn't have to break his bones like they did the other criminals that were hanging next to him. In Psalm 24, or 22, 14, and 16, it also writes to the Messiah, he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. The connection to the Passover lamb. Why? Because Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was crucified. He was sacrificed on our behalf. Hebrews 9.12 says, With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Colossians 1.13 says, He's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. When we placed our faith and trust in Christ, through that Passover lamb, we made our own exodus out of darkness and into the light. In Romans 8.29, talking about the firstborn, it says, God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus rose from the dead so he could be the first to rise with everlasting life. And because he rose, we know that we will rise too. Though the symbology and the symbolism in the story is astounding, and there are volumes that have been written on this. I'm only scratching the surface. This is like the Cliff's Notes to what's going on in the story. It's so remarkable what God is revealing or what God is doing. It was hard for the Israelites to trust the Lord after 400 years. 
Our nation's not even 400 years old. And when we watch the news, when we read the stories, we see how we've forgotten our history. It hasn't been that long. Imagine being slaves for 400 years. Imagine how hard it would be for you if someone came up and said, God spoke to me and said, he's going to change your life. Trust me, I've come here to help rescue you. You might be a little disheartened. You might be a little hard to just jump and believe that. Especially when Moses went to Pharaoh, it says Pharaoh increased the harshness in labor to force them into submission. So not only did God tell Moses to go declare their freedom, when he went and declared it, their situation got worse. And so Moses goes back to God in Exodus 5, through 23. He goes back to the Lord in protest. He says, why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he's been even more brutal to your people, and you've done nothing to rescue them. There's been times where I've believed God for a promise and have waited and waited and waited. And there have been times I've gotten in the flesh and I've gone to God and I say, God, I know you've said this, but you are doing nothing to make this happen. You know, sometimes there's time between the call and the deliverance. There's a time period between God's call, his promise, and the deliverance. And in that time is when the enemy likes to show up with this false counterfeit signs wonders and miracles to lead your heart away and get you distracted on everything else but the faithfulness and promises of God. You pray and hope, pray and hope, but then when the evidence is contrary, it makes it really hard to continue to believe. You know, you might have begun a relationship with God a long time ago, hoping and praying that all your problems would go away, just like Israel. Oh, we're going to be delivered? Okay, great. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Let's, let's have all of our problems be done. And yet there's an extended period of time where it seems like God does nothing. So it gets hard to stay faithful and trust in the promises of God. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, it says, When Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, they refused to listen to him anymore because they too became discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. They're like, yeah, we heard it before, Moses. Yep, God's good. Yep, he's faithful. But my life does not reflect the very thing that you're saying. There's often a period of time between the call and the deliverance. Maybe you heard today and you came because there's something going on in your life and you're seeking the Lord. And you're like, if I just give my heart to Jesus or I just do something religious or I do something to please him, then maybe my problems can go away. Maybe you're here and you feel that impression on your heart to begin a relationship with him and you're hoping that when you do, your addiction will go away, your marriage will be restored, it'll be instantly better, your kids are going to stop struggling. Your depression will go away. Your addiction will go away. Whatever it is, you know, we know what's impossible with man is all things are possible with God. And maybe you're here, and that's why you're here. You're like, if I just come today, maybe I'll get that miracle. And and I just want this stuff to stop. And you keep holding on to a promise, but yet you feel it and experience it to be unfulfilled. See, the story of the Exodus, what it reveals to us is though... We may get to a place in our life where we want to give up on God or it becomes hard to trust or hard to believe. God never gives up on you. You might get to a place where you're like, God, 
I've had enough. I'm ready to throw in the towel. God never gives up on you. And he appointed a divine time when the seas would part and exodus would take place for the nation of Israel. He declared a divine time when the hands of Christ would be stretched out and the sacrifice would be done and he'd rise from the grave so that the exodus of our soul could go from death to life. And beloved, he has declared a divine time for your breakthrough to come to. He is the answer to every need. He's the God above all gods. Everything to sustain that which pertains to life is found not in the gods of this world, but in the God who created the world. The question is, is are we going to lift our hands in protest and harden our hearts like Pharaoh, or are we going to lift our hands in praise and soften our hearts for everything that he wants to do? In Matthew 13, 15, the last scripture I'll leave with you today as we begin to close. Jesus said, for the hearts of these people are hardened, their ears cannot hear, their eyes have closed, or they've closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see, their ears cannot hear, their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me, what, beloved? Heal them. They won't let me heal them. What would have happened in Egypt if Pharaoh would have just let him go? And rather than turning from the Lord, they turned to the Lord. What would happen in your life if you stopped holding on to the walls and the defenses and the protection mechanisms and all the things that you're trying to guard and protect yourself to keep yourself from being hurt and you just laid it down at the feet of Jesus and you said, God, take all of me. You see, God is not allowing things in your life to hurt you, but he's working through these circumstances to heal you. Your circumstance is not meant to hurt you. Your circumstance is meant to heal you. There are things in your life that he's trying to draw your attention to, and the pain is what brings you to that place. And just like Egypt, he doesn't want to destroy you. He wants good for you, not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. This is what God wants for you. You can trust him. And in the in-between time, when it seems like nothing is going on, you can trust him to do what he said he's going to do. I believe God's going to deliver your marriage if you both stay faithful. I believe that God is going to call your child home if you've trained them up in the way they should go. I believe that God's going to give you hope so that you have strength for tomorrow to get through the sickness you've been battling as you're waiting for your healing. I believe that God is the God above every God, and our God is good. And his promises are true. And just like Israel, before they obeyed the Passover, God was already fighting for them. And beloved, God's already fighting for you. He's fighting for your heart. He's fighting for your marriage. He's fighting for your life. He's fighting for your future. He's fighting for you. He's got plans in store to prosper you and make you altogether new. He's fighting for you. The question is, is are you going to trust him and begin to follow him out of the bondage and into freedom? Let's bow for prayers. Music begins to play. Worship team comes forward.
We're going to go into a time of prayer, a time of just stillness before the Lord. It's time to just surrender to the Lord. It's time to stop trusting in other gods that cannot speak, that cannot answer. It's time to trust the one that already spoke light into existence. They already created all things. It's time to give Jesus our hearts. It's time to trust in the Lord to find the freedom that you're longing for. He's promised to lead you through deep waters, to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death and into the promised land. He will lead you through thick and thin because he will be with you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. Think about it. The God who created you, if you give your heart to him, he will never abandon you and he'll never think badly of you because you're his child. Though you may stumble, though you may fall, your heavenly Father will see you through it all. Though you may stumble, though you may fall, Jesus is with you through it all. And if you place your faith in him, if you renew your faith this morning, your eyes will get to see the glory of the Lord. As your enemies are defeated and the pathway to victory is revealed, you will get to stand in his glory. And declare this truth. Yes, my God is the God above all gods. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.